0: And troubles which God allows us to experience. And uh, that takes from verse 2 to verse 18 of chapter 1. And then, after finishing that theme up, James moves to his next great theme, which is the theme of faith and works. And he goes on to spend more than on an entire chapter on that theme, unpacking the truth that uh, true faith manifests itself in a person's life and in his relationships. That transition becomes clear in chapter 1, verse 22, when James begins to talk about being doers of the word and not hearers only. So in this section on faith and works, which we'll finish next week, James mentions three examples at the end of chapter 1 of how our faith must be accompanied by our work or by our faith must be manifested in our lives. The first is the use of the tongue in James 1.26. The second is the uh, caring for the poor in 1.27 where he talks about caring for orphans and widows and their affliction. And then his final example, also in 127, is how uh, we should keep ourselves unstained from the world. Now, the significance of these three examples that he's picked from the end of chapter 1 is seen in that he returns to all three of them later in his apostle and, and elaborates on what he's introduced in those three examples. In uh, the use of the tongue in James 1, 1 to 12, James 3, 1 to 12, caring for the poor in our passage today, James 2, 1 to 13, and keeping ourselves unstained from the world in James 4, 3 to 5. So today we're in the middle one of those three, caring for the poor. And when James comes to elaborate on that theme, the caring for the poor, that example of how we should live out our faith, he doesn't just exhort us to care for the poor, but he dives into a specific sin that frequently prevents people from caring for the poor, and that is the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. Now, um, if you're unconvinced that there's a connection between what James says in 1.27 when he talks about caring for the widows and orphans and what he says here in 2.1-13 about the sin of partiality, uh, that's fine. Um, don't let it be a distraction. Most scholars agree that with the connection that I'm pointing out here, but, but uh, don't be distracted that, by that and let that uh, be the thing that you're thinking about as we're focusing on this passage. So let's read together James 1, 1 to 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you, commit, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so now well, let's take a few minutes and just sort of walk through the passage and reflect on what James says before we um, come to ask ourselves, you know, about how we should be thinking of this in terms of our lives. In James 1, 2-1 that is, verse 1, James exhorts the Christians that he's writing to to live out their faith by not showing partiality. Now, what is partiality? This is not an expression that that, uh, we, you know, that is, bandied about in our society very frequently referring to this kind of thing. But it's the word that is in the translation and it's, it's, it, it's very overlapping with many of the expressions we do use in our society. It means favoring one group or one side over against the other. The synonyms might be prejudice, bigotry, favoritism, bias... It's well defined actually in verse 4 of our passage, which refers to making distinctions among yourselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts. So let's just stop for a minute and reflect on that. Making distinctions among ourselves. In other words, treating people according to the category they're in instead of just loving them whatever category they're in. And then it says, and becoming judges with evil thoughts. It's not just talking here about how you act. It's also talking about the way you think in your heart. It says, becoming judges with evil thoughts. So it's not just a matter of how you treat people. It's a matter of how you think about people and feel towards people. Because what's in your heart will inevitably come out... In your words and in your actions. So it's not enough just to control what you say and do. Here it says becoming judges with evil thoughts. And, uh, you know, that's a little bit awkward, but, the, but it's a simple concept. It's, it's judging others. Or prejudging them. In other words, before you even know them, before you even know them personally and know their hearts and know what they, how they act, you're already judging them. And that's what pre-judging is. And that's where we get the word prejudice. Pre-judging. Judging someone based on what category they're in instead of based on the character of their own hearts or Based on the fact that they're human beings made in the image of God. Or based on the fact that they're believers in Christ. The point is this. It is evil to assume what another person is like when you don't know them. Whether it's based on what they look like or what group they're a part of. It's evil to judge them. It's really an umbrella. Partiality is an umbrella term which includes many concepts that are bandied about in our society like racism, sexism, classism, parochialism, nepotism, ageism, nationalism, any kind of discrimination or favoritism based on some human Distinction or characteristic or circumstance. And God opposes partiality. 2 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, partiality is a natural part of sinful human nature. Often, we show preferences to the group that's like us. My family, my people, my group, my country, my school, my kind. Or we might show preferences toward those who have something that might benefit us like money, like power, like beauty, like position, influence. The specific form of partiality that James is referring to here in chapter 2 is classism. Favoring one class over against another. That is favoring the rich over the poor. That's the most common form of classism. As Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor. But the rich has many friends. And there's a number of verses that say this. You know, The rich man's got lots of friends. Why? Because he's so friendly? No, it's because he's rich. He's got something that can, we can, might benefit from. And the poor is disliked even by his neighbor for the same reason. He has nothing that I need. Nothing that can help me. There are other types of partiality that the Bible talks about as well. In fact, the partiality that receives the most attention in the New Testament is ethnic partiality, what we call racism, whether where one ethnic group is partial toward their own ethnic group and partial against another ethnic group. We see this in the struggle bet- that the Jewish Christians had to accept Gentile Christians. Remember that dream that Pete, God gave Peter uh, about with the sheet that was full of the Unclean animals and how he sent Peter to preach the gospel at Cornelius's house. Well, when Paul, Peter got there, he uses this exact same word in Acts ten, twenty-eight to 35. He says, you yourselves to these Gentiles... Who are interested in the gospel. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then in Romans 2.11, speaking about the same thing Paul says. God shows no partiality so that is ethnic partiality but this that James is talking about is partiality with regard to rich and poor for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes in and a poor and shabby man also comes in you say to the one you sit here in this good place to the other one you sit over there or sit at my feet you are, showing, you are making distinctions and becoming judges with evil thoughts. And then he goes on to explain why this is so wrong-headed. Listen, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world's eyes to be rich in faith? But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court and blaspheme the honorable name by which you've been called? Like, why are you doing this? Now, predominantly God has chosen the poor and lowly to possess the riches of his kingdom. Why? Why does God choose the poor more than the rich? Well, 1 Corinthians one to 26-29 answers this question. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, and that certainly includes the poor, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So you see that God has chosen the poor so that rich people don't, who are saved don't boast that their salvation comes from their, even in their own hearts. Uh, they won't boast that their salvation is a result of the fact that they're rich, that God loved them because they're rich. There's only a few that are rich that are saved. I remember in my youth group growing up, we would often talk about how great it would be if this cool kid or that captain of the football team or this cheerleader would become a Christian. And we'd say, think about the impact that would have on the other kids in the school. But the fact is, it rarely happened. And the times it did, that person often would not be very strong in the faith and his faith often wouldn't last very long. Predominantly, it was the little people, the ordinary people, who God called to himself and gave the gift of faith. And this is consistent with what we read here in 1 Corinthians 1, the passage I just read. You see, Jesus said it was hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom. And that's because... As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6.17, the rich tend to be haughty and to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches instead of on God. The rich feel like they have what they need, typically, not all, but generally. But by showing favoritism or partiality towards the rich, James says you have, in verse 6, you have dishonored the poor man. You know, poor people are used to being dishonored and disrespected and disregarded and disdained. They're used to being treated like second-class citizens at best. But they ought not get treated that way by Christians. Christians are the ones who love and ought to be the people who love and honor all, no matter who they are or what category they're in. And sometimes this means going out of our way to reach those who are habitually dishonored by others. Remember that the church of Christ was built upon a rejected cornerstone. Who had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's who Jesus was. And the whole glorious kingdom of God is built upon that cornerstone that was rejected often the ones the world discards are God's hidden jewels James goes on to make it clear in verse 8 to 11 that this is a matter of great importance first he ties it to the second commandment love your neighbor as yourself And if we don't love the poor who wander into our churches or wander into our lives, we are, as he says, committing sin and are convicted as transgressors by God's law. This, of course, applies to other forms of partiality as well. Then he goes on to emphasize the point by saying that whoever disobeys one part of the law disobeys it all. It seems that he's thinking that some people will interpret the his exhortations about partiality as if he's talking about a minor and not a major application of God's law. Or, well, that's just one little law, but I'm doing, you know, the other 99. But this is one in particular that a lot of people don't want to listen to, don't want, don't want to hear about. This passage, which is so clear... And so powerful, it seems to me, you don't see it put on posters very much and, and put out for uh, people to read because it's a little embarrassing. It's something that we need to face, but it's easy not to. And then here, here's James's conclusion in verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, go out and speak and act as a person who lives under the law of Christ, the law of liberty. Live a merciful life because those who don't show mercy to others will not be shown mercy. Again, he's quoting his brother. This is James the Apostle brother of jesus and he's quoting jesus who taught that very thing about about that in uh, matthew 7 judge not lest you be judged for the judgment you pronounce you will be judged uh, with the measure you use it will, will be measured to you in matthew 7 so um how can we expect to be treated by god with mercy when we haven't been t- treating others with mercy When it comes to, and then this last uh, phrase is so precious, mercy triumphs in judgment or over judgment. When it comes to the gospel, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the gospel. Mercy triumphing over judgment in our lives. Instead of God giving us the judgment we deserve, he gives us his mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if that's the gospel of our salvation, it all also ought to be the way we live our lives. We ought to be people on, in whom mercy is triumphing over judgment. The mercy of Christ through his spirit and through his word in us ought to triumph over the fleshly judgmentalism that resides in our hearts, in our sinful nature. It seems to me... Turning now to application, it seems to me that there are three lessons or points that we need to walk away with. Uh, One is that the gospel of salvation by faith alone should not lead us to think that once you come to faith, it doesn't matter how you live. On the contrary, true faith transforms the way we live and the way we think. The second point, and I'm going to elaborate on each of these. The second point is that people who have faith in Christ ought to look past the human distinctions which are common among people. Distinctions like male and female, old and young, rich and poor, black and white. And and then the third thing is that we ought to consider our attitude toward the poor. The Christian church ought to be different than other settings in society. It ought to be a place where the poor are treated with respect and with kindness and with welcome and with honor in spite of how they might be dressed or what kind of car they might drive, if they even drive a car. So let's just reflect on each one of these for a moment. First of all, faith and works. The overall concern of James in this section has to do with living out the faith, being doers of the word. He has no objection to Paul's teaching that salvation is by faith alone apart from works. And we'll see that next week. But he is concerned that some might twist that doctrine to mean that there's no need to put faith into action. But you see, faith not only produces salvation, faith also produces a lifestyle of reflecting Jesus. One of the classic expressions of Reformation uh, theology is salvation is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. You've probably heard that before. Salvation is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Salvation by faith alone articulates the fact that we are saved not on the basis of any merit of our own, only by trusting in Christ and on account of his merits. Salvation by a faith that is not alone, or by faith but is not by a faith that is alone, states that true faith is never devoid of the good works which naturally result from faith in Christ. These works themselves, of course, cannot save us, but they inevitably exist nonetheless in the life of a person of true faith. Well, it seems to me that we can think of Paul as the apostle of salvation by faith alone as he sets it forth in Galatians and Romans, James, on the other hand, is the apostle of salvation by faith which is not alone. That's his burden. And neither of them contradict each other, but they are two sides of this great expression that may seem in tension with each other to some degree, but there's no contradiction at all. Next week we're going to talk about the second half where James further unpacks the relationship between faith and works. The second thing, the second uh, lesson or point is, has to do with human distinctions. Christians, of course, like everybody else, we're influenced by the people around us. We need, and we need to know and recognize that there's a natural bent in us to do exactly what James is talking about here with regard to the way that we treat this person as opposed to that person. And the story of David is illustrative. Remember when Samuel was sent to anoint a new king from among the sons of Jesse. And everyone assumed that God's chosen king must be one of the older sons who were, you know, now young men. And they were big and strong and impressive. But no, it was little unimpressive David whom God had chosen. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord does not see as man sees. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16:7. God doesn't see things the way we see them, and therefore we need to learn to see things differently than the way we see them naturally. We need to learn to see things according to Christ. That's part of growing into his likeness. We naturally have a bent towards those who are like us. And it's easy to assume that that's consistent with the way God thinks, but it's not. God sees people from every nation, From all tribes and peoples and languages. And he loves them regardless of their human distinctives. And he asks us to have this same mindset. Now, there is a contradiction between partiality and the gospel. And believers in Christ need to recognize that contradiction. And repudiate partiality. The Lord wants to help us to learn to love all people, regardless of their human distinctives. Not just the ones who are like us. The fact is that Jesus we love and embrace was himself very different from us. He was culturally different. He was ethnically different. He was linguistically different. That is his language. But in God's grace, he is... what. But in his grace, Jesus welcomed us in spite of all those differences. And now Jesus wants us to welcome and love others, even those who are different in terms of culture, class, age, gender, ethnicity, nationality, language, and other human distinctions. And finally, our attitude towards the poor. It's natural for us to favor the rich and disdain the poor. And this manifests itself in subtle ways. Um, you know, this is the example he gives is the way you treat people in church. But very rarely do we have people walk into church with big gold rings and elaborate uh, robes. And, uh, you know, this kind of... Yeah. So it's easy to say, well, I'd never do that, right? Well, yes, we we probably would never do that in that obvious way. But there's a lot of subtle ways where this... And one of the ways that uh, I think um, we can subtly have this kind of um, bent in our own hearts, the way that we pay attention to the rich and the famous, the way that we uh, follow the celebrities and uh, all the news of the royal family and... uh, and that, I'm not saying there's anything inherently evil about that, but are we also interested in the poor? Are we interested in the famines that are occurring in the world and the, the wars and what, how it's impacting the, uh, the poor and the, the uh, destitution that exists and the oppression that is going on in the world and the starvation? Does, do these news stories catch our attention Or not? Are we just uh, interested in the rich and famous? Jesus said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know... Obviously, uh, that has to do, first and foremost, with hospitality and who you bring into your home. But it applies to who you talk to and who you think about and who you pray for. And it applies to who you're interested in finding out more about. It seems to me that this does say something about who we're enamored with. But it goes beyond even who we're enamored with. It also involves the human tendency to think of or or, uh, treat some people as trash. I think it would be good for all Christians to do an inventory in their own minds of how they view various kinds of people. And to go through people and make sure that there's no category of people when they come to mind that immediately we have that, this category that we put them in. this person, this category of people is like trash. That's such a human tendency. Almost every people group in the world has some group that they despise. Some class of people or more than one that are, like, untouchable to them. And the fact is, believers, there's no room in a Christ-filled heart for a trash bin that has people in it. And so it's a good thing to, to do an inventory, make sure that there isn't one in your heart whether it's the poor or some other category. So we've got to cooperate with the Spirit of Christ and with His Word instead of just giving in to what's very natural in the inclinations of our flesh. And we have to be able to discern them. We have to want to see it if it's there and be able to discern it and call it what it is and repudiate it if it is there. We can fool ourselves into thinking that, you know, since we're not rich, we can't be prejudiced against our own kind, but this isn't true. There are many poor people who are prejudiced against the poor. In their own minds, they are enamored with riches, and, and so they have the same kind of prejudice, even though they're not, they don't have much. And I want to end by reading 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, this uh, passage paints this picture of a scene going on at church where, you know, people around the service maybe hasn't started yet or it's after the service is over and people are milling around talking and it's actually it's before the service because you're telling people where to sit. And you, you want the rich person to sit here. So that's the scene that's given. But you know what the real scene is that's going on at church? All of us are the poor people. And Jesus is a rich person who is Welcoming us and giving his riches to us. Impoverishing himself in order that we might no longer be poor. That's the reality of what goes on in church. And if we don't recognize that that's really what church is all about. That we are the poor that have been, you know, we were the poor who we've become rich because Jesus gave himself and, and became our riches. If we have that mindset, then we can see that the poor are just like us. They just need Jesus like we once did and still do. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we, we give you thanks for your word. What a precious and powerful gift it is to us to have your word over and over again. O oh Lord, we, we, we meet you in it. We see you in it. And we see ourselves in it. And we thank you for the privilege. And we pray that you would help us even now as we come to the precious table of our Lord Jesus to see that we come as poor people who are uh, partaking in a great banquet, not because we deserve it but you have invited us you've sent your servants out to the highways and byways and brought us in even though we had, have nothing no ticket, no money by which we can purchase. But you've given us this by grace. And now, O Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we partake. We want and need to feed on Jesus. Help us this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen.